Hello everyone, once again, welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're glad you're joining us today. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast, uh, which is guided for the most part by your questions on the Bible. That's right, we are live on various platforms and you can send us in your questions and we will use the Bible, the Word of God, to find the answers to those. That's what we're all about. So it could be like a verse or passage of, of Scripture you'd like expanded upon it may have confused you in the past or something or maybe even something you're going through um, in your life and you'd like a biblical perspective um, maybe even other world views or meaning any honest question you have like that um, as long as it's an honest question as long as you know that the bible is the source of the answers for us here on a reason for hope that's what we are all about my name's dave robson i'll be hosting today and keeping my eye on all those platforms and today it's just me and peter peter martin pastor and author counselor Wonderful friend and man of God. How are you doing today? Doing good. You're doing good? Yeah. Yeah. It's good to see you. I'm glad to be here. Adrian usually hosts on Monday nights, but... No, he's he been out with a pretty gnarly sickness. Pretty gnarly sickness. Yeah. But um, he hopes to be back in action tomorrow, but I'm hosting for him tonight. But uh, keep him in your prayers um, so he can be back with us. That'd be great <coughs> do that soon. Uh, well, let me uh, take a moment here to go over all the different uh, platforms in case you're trying to find us or if not aware of something but like, like I mentioned a reason for hope we're with you Monday through Friday 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time um, here in Tucson Arizona is where we're based it's a, a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson so if you're in the Tucson area you're more than welcome to come check us out you can get some more information on our website calvarychristianfellowship.com we are uh, near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway right there uh, but check out our website, like I say, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. We have lots of events going on, of course, services on Sunday and a Wednesday evening service. We have men's groups and women's groups and support groups and all kinds of things going on. So check that out. But for tonight, if you click on that Watch Live tab, that will take you to our live page. When we're off air, you'll see a countdown to our next show and a schedule of upcoming events. But when we're live, you'll see the video. You can sign in with a username of your choice and uh, send your question in through that method. There's a chat uh, function that I will be on and monitoring. So you can send your, your question in that way. And the direct link to that, just type in ccftucson.online.church. If you put that right in your browser um, address bar, that will take you straight to that page, ccftucson.online.church. <clears throat> We're on Facebook, of course, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that. But that's another way that you can uh, send your question in, just in the, in the chat box um, attached to the video there. Uh, Facebook.com slash ccftucson is uh, the way to find that as well or just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson if you look in your app store for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson you'll find our app there and I pressed too many buttons there we go um, that red background with the white uh, Calvary Ta Chapel Dove logo um, is our app and you can watch us on the app and uh, interact with us there as well we put <coughs> archive messages um, on there as well and all kinds of things so check out that app and if you have Roku or Apple TV we have a channel so go to your channel store and Look for, once again, Calvary Christian Fellowship Tucson and add our channel. You can watch us there as well. We're on YouTube, of course. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel on YouTube. A Reason for Hope. Uh, that's a great place to go to catch up on archived shows as well. Whenever we've been live, if you go to that live tab, it will uh, they're automatically archived there. So if you missed a show or want to recap on one or even check out services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, um, that's all under that live tab right there and of course we're actually live there as we speak don't forget to like and um, subscribe and click on the notification bell we'd appreciate that support 
if you've been blessed by uh, this ministry. So a reason for hope on YouTube. Our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship and the founder of A Reason for Hope, Scott Richards, is on Twitter. He's not with us today. He's usually with us Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, for the most part. Sometimes things change around, depending on schedules and stuff. But um, anyway, you can find him on Twitter, Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H on Twitter. He posts all kinds of stuff, entertaining things and interesting things about uh, uh, current events and um, world events as they pertain to end time prophecy and end times and uh, all that kind of good stuff. So follow along with him on Twitter if you're on there. We're on Rumble as well. A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A. We post uh, our uh, archive there and some questions of the week and that kind of thing. So if you're on Rumble, look for us on Rumble too. That'd be great. A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A. And of course, we have an email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. You can email us there anytime you would like. Um, on the radio, uh, if you're listening to us and uh, catching us on Reach Radio or another radio affiliate, uh, you'll want to use that email address as you are listening to the last show we did pre-recorded, so you're not live with us per se. So questionsforhope at gmail.com is the way to send in your question, and then we'll get to that on our next show. Uh, we're glad you're joining us and listening in. Drive safely if you're on your drive time, and consider maybe joining us on one of our live platforms when you're home, and you can be part of the show live. So. All that being said, let's pray. <laughs> Shall I pray today? You do, man. I always throw it out to you guys, but I can pray too. The can Lord you? hears me. Okay. Yeah, I, can. I think so. <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how the show goes, yeah. and I'll let you know the prayer went. <laughs> Our Father, who art yes. Yeah, let's pray. We like to pause and pray and obviously give this time to the Lord and want his guidance, certainly in his word, when we're handling that serious stuff. So um, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, today. Thank you that you are sovereign over our lives you are um, the author of our life and the good shepherd and um, so many things so many names that you have that describe who you are and your attributes lord um, we love you we thank you for loving us first and uh, saving us and uh, reaching out to us with your love and your grace and your mercy and just with salvation lord we owe it all to you we owe our lives to you and um, we thank you for this this next hour this time for peter and i to uh, to be live. Thank you for this technology that we can reach out all around the world. Uh, Lord, we pray you guide this time. We, we just want to acknowledge that we're, we're talking about your truth and your word and your ways, Lord, and uh, it's a serious thing. Thank you for your grace and, and uh, allowing us to be part of this, um, to use us, Lord, to, to um, be ministers in your hands and feet. We know that you can do all things by yourself, that you don't need us, so thank you for choosing to use us. Um, and invest in us like a good father and so we, we just pray that every word we share would would be accurate and true of you lord thank you for your word as a resource to use um, to study and to grow in lord um, thank you for everyone joining us and listening uh, give them the, the bravery and courage to send in their questions lord and guide us in those answers and again we just dedicate this time to you lord we want you to minister and speak and we want to grow in you and just grow in that grace and knowledge of who you are Thank you that you're able to do this and you're willing and you love to do that. Lord, you love to speak to us and, and minister to us and, and <coughs> see us walk in you. So um, all these things, Lord, we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, we were uh, talking before the show briefly <coughs> that someone that was a, a big influence to you um, passed away recently. And you were going to share. Yeah, that's right. So some people may be aware of him. He was one of, uh, I guess, a more popular pastor out in New York City called Timothy Keller. Uh, he pastored a church uh, 
Lutheran church called Redeemer, Redeemer Baptist out in, uh, I'm sorry, Redeemer Lutheran Church out in New York City. And he was just a huge influence on my life when I came back to Christ in my early 20s. So uh, for those of you guys who don't know my story, when I was uh, around 13 years old, I left the faith. I came back to the faith when I was around 16, but I had a really shaky relationship with God, and I never really pursued him. I had a very, very legalistic relationship with him for a couple years. And then my early 20s, uh, the gospel really hit me. It really came home into my heart, and I started to understand what it meant to uh, live by grace and uh, to live by faith, should I, should I say. And at that point of being discipled by Bo and being discipled by Scott, I was seeking out other influences that would help me understand the Bible better, uh, help me better understand my faith, and I stumbled across a guy named Timothy Keller. And what really drew me to him is C.S. Lewis is my favorite author. Uh, if you've watched the show at any point, you know I quote him a lot. <laughs> and it's because I've read basically everything he's written, and I just I love C.S. Lewis. And uh, Timothy Keller has been called by many people the C.S. Lewis of our day because mm. he's just incredibly well-read. He has a philosophical mind, uh, and he's also a theologian, which is a little bit different than C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis was like a bare philosopher. And he understood theological truth really well, but he was a professor at Oxford. The difference is Timothy Keller was actually coming from a pastoral standpoint. And so he gave me a lot of uh, practical wisdom like Lewis, but he also tied it into theological truth in a way that I hadn't really heard many other pastors do. So uh, apart from the pastors that have discipled me personally, like Bo and Scott, I would say he's had the biggest influence on my faith of anyone else. Mm. Uh, so I've read quite a few of his books. I've listened to quite a few of his sermons. I'd encourage if you've never heard Timothy Keller, look him up and listen to some of his stuff. He's got really, really profound insights. But because the main ministry that he's known for is coming out of New York City, his main focus is on secular atheism. So if you want to know about like good, logical answers to criticism against Christianity coming from a faithful guy, I would really suggest Timothy Keller. He's uh, written books on it. Counterfeit Gods is a really good one. He's also uh, written books about the existence of God, the meaning of marriage, uh, explaining the Christian ethical worldview about marriage and sexuality to someone who may not be too familiar with the, uh, the biblical worldview. It's just really, really great stuff. So I was reading in my own book today, uh, the first book I wrote, Rooted in Sin, Rescued by Love, and going over different quotes that I put into that book from Timothy Keller, because these are the ones that I believe kind of most influenced my walk at that time. And, and by the way, for those of you guys who are curious, he died of pancreatic cancer over the weekend. Uh, he died at, I think, 72. So be praying for his family, be praying for his uh, his church, to because obviously 72 to a young guy like me might sound very young. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like ancient, but it's it's actually, it's not that ancient. And uh, if you see videos of him, even just like last week, uh, he definitely did not look like he was on death's door. He was very mm -hmm. vibrant and lively. So uh, definitely a tragic passing for sure. Mm -hmm. Some people, by the way, and this is just a critique I have of Christianity in general, they would focus on the fact that his theological bendings, uh, he, he bent towards Calvinism, even though he wasn't as outspoken about it as guys say like MacArthur. Uh, he did bend towards Calvinism. Some people are like, well, you know, that's, that's kind of dangerous because he bends. Okay, he, he was a faithful Christian. He was a faithful brother. He had amazing insights. If you're going to be stumbled by petty little secondary issues like that, then you're, you're being a little narrow-minded. It's, it's important to understand the unity we have as a body as opposed to fixating upon the uh, 
obscure kind of secondary issues that divide us. But at any rate, here are a couple quotes from him that I think have really served me well in my own walk with God, and I hope will be a blessing to you guys and maybe motivate you to listen to some of his sermons and maybe purchase some of his books, because they are just as relevant today as when he first wrote them. So this is from a book called—it's uh, just called On Prayer, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's pretty easy. And I first picked it up because prayer has always been a difficult part of my relationship with God. Uh, my mind is very difficult for me to ground myself. I tend to be out in the great beyond in my thoughts, I think, in abstract ways very often. And so when I'm not grounded relationally, it's really difficult for me to relate to somebody else. So if I'm not talking to you personally, it's very, very difficult for me to relate to you. So with God, it's always been easier for me to relate to him on abstract uh areas, right? Mm -hmm. So studying and researching theology and philosophy, I'm really, really comfortable with, but being intimate with God, that would be like in the realm of worship or the realm of prayer. I've always struggled with that. It still remains a big struggle in my walk with God, to be honest. And so I was looking around for someone who might help me learn how to pray better, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, not a lot of Christians talk about it. And if they do talk about it, they talk about it as if it's like really obvious of like, well, of course, you pray to God, you know, and, and there's like a 400-page book just telling you that you should just pray more. Uh, and I've read some of those, by the way. Yeah. But Timothy Keller wrote a really amazing book that met me right where I was at. And the thing that drew me to it immediately was the first page. He quotes uh, a passage in Matthew where the disciples of Jesus come to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray. Yeah. And he points out, he's like, don't you realize these are grown men, yeah. right? These are, these are grown Jewish men who have lived in the faith their entire lives, and they thought they knew how to pray. A part of Judaism is to pray, I think it's three times every day, right? It's just expected of you. But when they saw Jesus pray, they were like, we don't know anything about prayer. We don't know anything about talking to God. We thought we knew about talking to God. But when they saw the level of intimacy that Jesus had in his prayer life with the Father, mm. they were blown away and they had to investigate what Jesus was doing right and how they can emulate that. And that immediately spoke to me. I was like, okay, it's not just me. Right. The, the, there are many people who struggle with connecting with God on that emotive level. And so I, I read his entire book, and it's incredible. So this is just one uh, passage from it. He says, You are in Christ. You are adopted into the Father's family. You have the very divine life within you, the Holy Spirit. You are loved and accepted in Christ. You know about these things, and yet on another level, you don't know them. You don't grasp them. You are still dogged by your bad habits, often anxious or bored or discouraged or angry. You may have many specific problems and issues that need to be faced and dealt with through various specific means, yet the root problem of them all is that you are rich in Christ, but nevertheless living poor. Now, the point of that quote is he's saying that we have these amazing riches in God, but we don't have full access to them. So we have these resources, but we don't have, we haven't actually applied them to our lives in the, perf the perfected nature that God would want for us. And this is really cool because what it teaches us, it, it really ministered to me when I read this, I hope it ministers to a lot of people out there, is you might be beating yourself up over the head of not understanding why the heck you can know these things about God and have them not impact you on a deep emotive level. 
right? How is it that you can know that God is enough and sufficient for you, yet you keep going back to old habits and sin patterns that you know are destructive, and yet you can't help yourself? Mm-hmm. Or how is it that you can know on one level the doctrines of grace and salvation, and yet question your salvation on a regular basis? Or how can you know that God is real, and yet sometimes doubt even his existence at times and moments of doubt, uh, or go through a moment, uh, a time or a season of grief, and doubt God's goodness towards you or his love or care towards you. So what Timothy Keller is alluding to here is that there are truths that we understand intellectually that haven't yet moved their way into our souls and motivated our lives. And he's talking about how prayer oftentimes is the way that we move those truths from one area of our life, the intellectual level, to the more uh, spiritual level. But he also is talking about how it takes time. It's like a life long pursuit. It's not something that happens like that. And it's not as simple as, well, you just don't understand that enough, or, well, that's just too much head knowledge for you, not enough heart knowledge. It it goes a little bit deeper than that, and he explains it in a really, really cool way. So, uh, again, good insight from that book. Anything you'd like to add or talk about real quick before I move Uh, on to the next quote? No, carry on. All right, cool. So, this is again from the same book. This one really helped me because at the time, I was thinking about entering into ministry. And people were telling me, well, like, has God called you to it? And I was like, well, I, I actually don't know if God's called me to this. I what, what would that look like? And, and so they're like, well, pray and see if God's called you to ministry. And uh, I was kind of moving forward in my discipleship with Bo. And again, people would just ask me, like, man, well, like, well, why are you entering into ministry? Have you been called to it? And they kept on bombarding me with that. And I was like, I don't know what that <laughs> means. Like, is it a fee? And whenever I would question them, I'd be like, well, is it emotion? Like, Am I supposed to feel a particular way? And they're like, well, no, no, it's not emotion, but are you called? And they would just keep repeating that like a mantra. And I'm like, I I don't know what you're talking about. And so (laughs) I I would question myself. I'm like, maybe I'm not called. Maybe I'm supposed to be doing something else. And it it really kind of screwed with my head a little bit. And I I read this, this passage from his book, and he was talking about a really prolific biblical expositor named George Whitfield. Uh, And in the late 1700s, he actually was a big part of the Great Awakening in the United States. Those of you guys who don't know much about the Great Awakening, you can look it up, but there's been a couple massive revivals that have happened in the West in the last couple hundred years, and he was a part of one of the first ones. And so Whitfield is just at top of his game. People are coming to faith through his ministry in droves, and he has a son with his life, wife Elizabeth. And he is so taken by the fact that he feels as though God has called his son into ministry, that he gives a sermon saying that this is my son, I'm going to name him John, because he's going to have a ministry like the uh, by like John the Baptist. He's going to have a ministry like that, turning fathers to their children and children to their fathers, and it's going to be amazing, and he gives this amazing prophetic message. Well then, and this is, now I'm quoting from his book, then at just four months old, his son died suddenly of a seizure. The Whitfields were, of course, grief-stricken, but George was particularly convicted about how wrong he had been to count his inward impulses and intuitions as being essentially equal to God's Word. Hmm. He realized he had led his congregation into the same disillusioning mistake. Whitfield had interpreted his own feelings, his understandable and powerful fatherly pride and joy in his son and his hopes for him as God speaking to his heart. Not long afterward, he wrote a wrenching prayer for himself that God would render this mistaken parent more cautious, more sober-minded, and more experienced in Satan's devices, and consequently more useful in his future labors to the Church of God. 
The lesson here is not that God never guides through our thoughts or prompts us, uh, prompts us within our minds to choose wise courses of actions, but that we cannot be sure he is speaking to us unless we read it within the scriptures. Now, this was amazing to me because it's like, okay, here's this guy, George Whitfield, who is way more spiritual than I'll ever be, being used on a level by God in a way that I will never be either. And yet he mistaken his own impulses and intuitions for the voice of God. Mm. Now, if it could happen to a guy like George Whitfield, it could certainly happen to someone like me. And what that taught me is God can lead through emotions and through intuitions, but you cannot be dogmatic or certain about it until either A, it comes to pass, or B, it confines perfectly into his scriptures. Yeah. And so when I realized that, I was like, okay, so is it possible that God can call me to ministry in some divine way in which I'm overwhelmed in an emotive sense and brought into confidence that I'm called to ministry? Yeah, but does he have to do it? And the answer right. is no, he doesn't. That's actually not something that God has promised. And I thought about Esther, the story of Esther, where she was constantly questioning whether or not she was called by God to be utilized to save the people of Israel. And again, that's someone who was used more powerfully by God than I ever will, mm. and she was never given confidence by God. Mm. That's the amazing thing about her story, is she marched forward and did the right thing and acted courageously, even though she didn't know for a fact that God had called her to do it. So in other words, she could have been walking into her death. That's why we admire Esther so much. She could have been walking into her death, but she didn't. God was for her. Mm. So that really helped me as well. It's like, okay, being in ministry is something that I am gifted at. It's something that God has given me gifts to do. The people in my life believe that I'm called. They're, they've, they're feeding into me, investing in me. So isn't that enough? Or do I need this like deep emotional experience in order to know that God's behind me? Mm. And I realized after reading this, like, I don't need that. Mm. I'm going to follow what I believe is right. And if it's wrong, then I will be, seek to be humble enough to hear otherwise from God. So that was really impactful for me, and it helped me a lot. Um, any, anything you'd like to add to that or talk about? Um, I mean, not it might be a whole other uh, day to discuss, but it, it's something recently I've been looking into, just how, like you're talking about, how does God lead us? I listened to a message recently, and um, the guy was showing, I forget his name right now, but um, well-known uh, teacher, preacher, Bible teacher. He was saying he there was a, a story that he had of a, of a a train, uh, a public transport he used to take, um, and there was a guy that he would see like every day, and he started talking to him one day and shared the gospel, and he came to know the Lord. And he realized as he started to tell people this story, he added in like, and the Lord spoke to me and said, go speak to this person, you know. And he, he said that's a really dangerous addition because um, God didn't speak to him necessarily like, go speak to this guy. Like God tells us in the word that we need to just share the, you know like it does yeah. god doesn't have to say oh by the way peter i want you to share yeah. the gospel you know like yeah. that's a given and we've already been given that instruction you know yeah. we don't need an emotional or audible or any other sort of feeling and he said it's dangerous when we start to frame things that way um, one he was talking about how pagan some of these things can be but also people listening would be like well i've never heard right i've never heard from god go speak to that person like i don't get that and i guess i I guess I shouldn't be sharing or I don't need to or I, right. something wrong with me or whatever. But so I don't know, that's beautiful what you're sharing that even though you maybe weren't this emotional kind of, you know, person with the Lord, there's, there's other ways that he speaks to us. And even Pastor Scott said the, the other day, again, from the pulpit, mm -hmm. like 99.9% of God's will for our life is revealed in the Scripture. word. You know, yeah. yeah already he tells us how we ought to live our lives 
and then we can form our lives to it. Yeah. Right? Um, so this is a concept that we find in the Bible, and Timothy Keller was, again, very good at this. If, if you struggle with God's leading within your life, I encourage you to listen to his series on the book of Proverbs. And what he talks about is that the majority of the Bible is actually about wisdom. It's about becoming mm. the right kind of person so that you make the right decisions. And mm. the analogy he uses is like, okay, well, if you have, like right now, my daughter's three, so she needs my permission to do literally anything, yeah. right? There's nothing in her life in which she doesn't need my permission. She needs permission to eat. She needs permission to sleep, to go to the bathroom. But if she's 20 and she's calling me for permission to eat, someone, <laughs> if you were listening to that, if I was on a phone call with my 20-year-old daughter and she's calling me to ask me if it's okay to eat or sleep, you would be like, something has gone seriously wrong yeah. in that parenting relationship. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason why you would assume that and you would, you would be right is because I haven't raised her to be wise. I've raised her to be dependent upon me. Yeah. And God is actually raising us to be wise. One of the most mm. uh, misinterpreted passages is in James chapter 1, where he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give liberally and without reproach. The word that he uses there is the Greek word sophia. It's the word for wisdom or discernment. It's not the word for knowledge. So in other words, the way that some mm. people read that passage is, if I lack knowledge, if I lack information, if I don't know what to do in a particular situation, I'll ask of God and he'll tell me what to do. But that's not what James is saying at all. He's saying the opposite. He's saying, no, no, no. If you lack wisdom, if you lack discernment, ask of God and he will make you into a discerning person. That's his goal for your life. If he just wanted to give you information, he could do that easily. He could just tell you what to do, right? right. And again, you're at the stage of parenting right now where you're transitioning between telling your kids everything to do and yep. saying like, okay, well, I need to actually take, take a step back and let them make a decision that I might not agree with yep. and let it blow up in their face and yep. then hopefully they'll learn from it. But it, it's that difficult kind of letting go phase of parenting mm -hmm. where again, you're seeking, do you want your kid to be right or do you want them to be wise? Right. So if you want them to simply be right or do the right thing, you can stop them forcibly. Yep. But if you want them to be wise, sometimes, depending on the level of error they're about to commit, yep. sometimes the best parenting is letting them do it yep. and letting them learn from the consequences. Yeah. And that's a terrifying thing to do. So he's really good at showing that. Yeah. And that's so important because there's not, the Bible doesn't contain, um, you know, a, a instruction for every single circumstance that we're going to face in our lives, exactly. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's easy to find loopholes. Well, it doesn't specifically say that I right. shouldn't, da, da, da. <laughs> Right. Instead of, I love what you're saying, just growing in wisdom and also just the, the character of God and what he yeah. expects from us and be able to move in those ways to where you don't need detailed instruction. You're like, well, that that just isn't something that would glorify God or that isn't something that, you know, that fits into, you know, my purpose and that kind of thing. So, Absolutely. yeah, yeah, it makes yeah. sense. All right. So I'll just do two more quotes. Uh, this one helped me understand courage a little bit better. So he's quoting, he's talking about the book of Acts. And uh, by the way, this is, this is from his book, Prayer Again. Uh, he's going through the, the book of Acts, and he's talking about Acts 2, where the apostles share at Pentecost. And he says, They, the apostles, went out and spoke the gospel in public with such a wonderful lack of self-consciousness that some thought that they had too much to drink. But their boldness was unlike being drunk in the most important respect. Alcohol is a depressant. It deadens parts of our rational brain. The happiness you may feel when you are drunk comes because you are less aware of reality. The spirit, however, gives you a joyful fearlessness by making you more aware of reality. 
It assures you that you are a child of the only one whose opinion and power over you matters. Mm -hmm. He loves you to the stars and will never let you go. So sometimes we, you know, we jokingly call alcohol liquid courage. You know, what I mean yeah. is that when people are drunk, they'll do just about anything, right? They have this boldness, but they usually do stupid things because your rationality is deadened when you're drunk. So no one gets drunk and then does heroic or virtuous things that they were too afraid to do. Right. Um, they get drunk and they do stupid things that they were too <laughs> afraid to do because their rationality has been dampened a little bit. Yeah. Um, so what he's saying is when we're filled with God's spirit, this doesn't mean that we're acting in irrational or foolish ways. It means that we're doing the rational things that we've been too timid to do. Right. So oftentimes we talk ourselves out of the right thing because we're afraid and we're unwilling to acknowledge that fear. Mm. What he says is, is God is working inside of your heart and mine not to deaden the fear, not to make you less aware of the danger. He's like, actually, the fear is a good thing because that means that you're smart enough to know that there's danger here, right? right. Anything that's worth doing in life is going to have a level of danger attached to it. Mm. What faith does is faith allows you to be aware not only of what the danger is that's right in front of you, but also what the prospective reward or benefit is on the other side. So the passage that uh, he seems to be heavily alluding to is 1 Peter chapter 4, where Peter says, Therefore, let us arm ourselves with the same mind that was in Christ, who, uh, for he who has suffered in the flesh has uh, abstained from all sin. Now what he's saying is, when Jesus went to the cross, he was very aware of what was awaiting for him when he went to the cross. Right? He was aware that he was going to die and he was going to bear all sin. And how much fear did he experience in the knowledge of that? So much fear that he started to sweat blood, right? right? But what enabled him to get on the cross was not deadening his fear. It was an increase of his understanding of reward. So when the angel came and comforted him in the garden, it's not that he alleviated Jesus of his fear. Mm. It's that he encouraged him in understanding more clearly and precisely what the reward was that he was pursuing. Mm. And Peter is saying, that's what we need to do, yeah. right? If you want to abstain from sin, if you want to be a righteous person, a virtuous person, you don't need to be less aware of the goodness of sin because sin is good in, mm. in, for a time. And you also don't need to be dead into your fears over doing the right thing. What you need to be aware of is you need to be more aware of the rewards that are placed within a relationship with God. Mm. That's what you need to be aware of. That's what's going to give you courage to do the right thing. Mm. Um, one last quote. This is from a devotional that he has out called The Songs of Jesus. It's a devotional through the Psalms. God removes our objective guilt, so it can't bring us into punishment. And he removes our subjective shame, so we don't remain in inner anguish. The happiest, most blessed people in the world are those who not only know they need to be deeply forgiven, but they have also experienced it. Hmm. So, Something that Timothy Keller was amazing at, uh, he, he calls his ministry gospel in life. And the reason why is because he has this incredible gift of, we had this incredible gift of bringing everything back around to be gospel focused, mm. right? So every single one of his sermons, no matter what he's talking about, he could be talking about wisdom or sexual ethics or, or whatever, politics even, at the end of the sermon, he's always going to bring it back to how the gospel affects our perspective on these things. Mm. So what he'll do in a sermon is he'll, he'll give a perspective of it. Here's like, here's a worldly perspective of it. Here's kind of a religious perspective on it. And then here's a perspective that you can only gain through the gospel. Mm. And he was really, really good at that. So he's talking in this section about here's the worldly perspective of what to do with guilt. Ignore it. 
here's the religious perspective of what to do with guilt. You try to earn your way out of it, right? Yeah. You try to work your way out of it through good deeds. Here's the only way, here's the perspective that you can only get from knowing the gospel, that you are deeply ensconced in sin, mm. but that you're also deeply loved by God to the extent that he died in your place, mm. right? That's the answer for guilt. So he did that with everything, and it's just, it's an incredible facet of his ministry. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, awesome. again, uh, he'll be sorely missed. Yep. And uh, again, be praying for him. Be praying. I mean, pre- praying for his family. He's good. <laughs> He's <in heaven. laughs> right, yeah. uh, but be praying for his family. Be yeah. praying for his ministry. Uh, and yeah, I, I strongly encourage you guys, if, if you've never checked out some of his books, uh, do it. He's he's really, really useful uh, mind and intellect and just a faithful brother in Christ. Yeah. For sure. Well, thanks for sharing that. Well, once again, we're talking about Timothy Keller, who passed away just over this weekend, did you yeah. say? Wow. Just over yeah. the weekend. And I, as I looked him up and saw his face, I was like, oh, yes, I've, I've seen him around. Yeah. Um, I've seen him around. Seen him around. Seen him around these pots. That's right. Well, uh, thanks for sharing that, Peter. We've got some, some questions coming in if you want to jump in. Let's do it. Um, I have a question that I could probably help with with uh, Craig. Craig was asking about looking for a Calvary Chapel Church in Sacramento area. And if you go to, um, I mean, for anyone looking for a Calvary Chapel. Let me just fumble through this right here. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to say, show you. more up your alley. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you go to calvarychapel.com, let me put this on the screen. Calvarychapel.com. Um, they have a, a church finder right here, if you can see that. And when you go to that link, you can put in just your, you know, your zip code or your address or allow it to you know, search your, your location. <laughs> and um, it will show you a map. And there are, I mean, what, hundreds of Calvary chapels, right? And certainly in California, that's where it was uh, founded. So there's yeah. a lot of um, weird, you know, Tucson there. But um, so if you go to go to that place, Calvary, you know, CalvaryChapel.com, look for the church finder. It will show you Calvary chapels in your area, not only in the states but around the world. There's even a Bible college in England, where I'm from, all around the world. So hope that helps you out, um, <coughs> Craig. Thank you for for that. Um, let's see. Question from Fran. Uh, could it be the reason why David faced Goliath was because it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us on the cross? Hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Is there hidden knowledge in Scripture? Uh, Pentecostals believe this. I don't know if that's a separate question or the same kind of thing, but hidden knowledge in Scripture. And was David and Goliath a foreshadowing of Jesus conquering us in, I guess you could say? but. It's actually a really, really good question. Um, all the questions we get are really good, but I'm just, I'm just pointing out that it's a very nuanced question. This is a gold star kind of question. Is, yeah, I'm going to give this a five out of five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but very, right, no, very, very good question because of how nuanced it is and how complex it is. So when we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus in John chapter five, he said, you search the scriptures because in them you believe you have eternal life. And these are they that testify of me. And there's a couple ways that we could look at the life of Jesus. Either the life of Jesus preaches and teaches us that your life is insignificant and doesn't matter, or it teaches you that your life is deeply significant and Mm. matters. And this is the difference. If I look at the life of David and I say, okay, well, David faced Goliath, and I could make gospel, and Jesus invites me to do this, right? He invites me in that statement to look at David facing Goliath and see a perspective of what do you have? You have a, a king, right? David is king at that point, anointed king, but he is not allowed to be king because the current king of Israel, who is a corrupt and evil person, is not allowing him to be king. He's not allowing him to step up. So David comes and he conquers a threat that the current king can't beat, and he does it through faith in God. 
right? There's a lot of corollaries there between God. I mean, between Jesus, well, Jesus, son of God, uh, Jesus and David, right? Jesus is king of the universe when he comes on the scene. But there are principalities and powers that are overshadowing him in his first coming that won't let him step into his rightful place, that deny him, right? Herod tries to kill all the newborns of, of uh the Judea area in order to kill Jesus when he's an infant, right? And uh, the, the high priests are threatened by him, and the Pharisees are threatened by him, and the Romans are threatened by Everybody in power is threatened by Jesus because mm-hmm. he has come to rule and reign. And even though there's this threat, what does Jesus do when he's on this earth? He figures out and solves problems that no king will ever be able to solve. Every king promises to give you health but none of them can heal your infirmities. Jesus does. Right. Every king promises to give you prosperity and sustenance, but Jesus makes bread and fish appear out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Every king promises to set you free from your guilt and put you on the right path towards goodness. Jesus is goodness incarnate and dies for you that you might have salvation in him. Right. So everything that kings try to do in politics, Jesus does, right? Yeah. And he does it perfectly. And here's the question. Did, J- did David do what he did? Did he fight Goliath simply because God was setting up an allegory for Jesus? Hmm. Or did the life of Jesus prove the importance of David's role in fighting Goliath? In other words, does David then become a picture of messianic perfection? Hmm. Or is his life only symbolic of something that God would later do? So some people move into this, this realm of thought that this life doesn't matter. And the reason why this life doesn't matter is because we're only living for the next life. You know, God is coming back and we're going to be in heaven with him. And therefore, what they get from the life of Jesus is that Jesus lived to die, right? He lived this life in order to one day lay it down on a cross. And that's how I'm living. I'm living to die, right? And that's the end of my life. And that's the purpose of my life is to end this mortal coil and enter into spiritual bliss. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of dangers that come from that. Right. You couldn't start becoming for me, for instance, I accepted that for a long time and I was like, okay, this life doesn't really matter. So I I was suicidal for a lot of my life thinking like, well, it doesn't really matter if I take my own life or if I die because I'm just I'm going to go to be with God anyway. And, uh, you know, when I felt like I was wasting my life, I was like, well, whatever, this life doesn't matter. I'm just going to put my faith in God and that's all that matters. And I was despondent. And once again, I didn't put much emphasis on what I was doing in my life or who I was. uh, I didn't think about the the important things of life, right? One of the most important things of life is, is growing and developing yourself as a human being, becoming more virtuous, seeking romance and seeking a family, right? These were things I wasn't thinking about at all because I was like, well, this life doesn't matter. And the passage that really turned me around was in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul is talking about sexual ethics. And there was a group of Christians who were arguing the same way. They were like, well, what's so wrong if I go and I have sex with a prostitute, mm-hmm. given the fact that this body doesn't even matter, right? I'm going to go be with God. My soul's going to be with God. Yep. My body's not going to go be with God. So if I go and I, and I exercise my uh, sexual lust in a way that some people would frown upon, what does it matter if mentally and spiritually I'm unified with God and I believe in what he's doing in me? So why is that a big deal? Hmm. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, at the, at the end of the chapter, he says, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Yeah. What's he saying? He's saying, yeah, God did die for your soul, but he also died for your body. That's why the resurrection happened, right? Jesus could have just ascended into heaven as a spirit, and that would show us what our lives are about, just ascending into heaven as spirits. But he comes back in the flesh. He raises from the dead. The tomb is empty. 
to show us, no, your bodies are going to be glorified in God, and therefore what you do in the body matters, right? God has died for your life. That helped me so much fight mm -hmm. some of the suicidal thoughts I'd always held because it's like, no, 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 God did not just die for my soul. He died for my body. This life is important to him. He wants me to live it in a way that honors him. And by the way, I can live this life in a way that honors him. So Jesus acting out, right, be, becoming a picture of what David had previously done doesn't make a mockery of David's life. It elevates it and hollows it. Hmm. No, David didn't just do something for his country. He did something that mirrored God, yeah. right? When you love your family, when you, if you go home tonight and you, whether you're a, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, whatever, if you go home tonight and you treat your family well, you are acting in a way that glorifies God. Hmm. You are doing something amazing with your life that gives honor and glory hmm. to him and shows who he was because Jesus honored his family. Jesus honored his relationships. He helped them, he healed them, and he saved them, right? So if you act in the same way, you are acting out righteousness. Mm -hmm. Some people get this idea of like, I can only be righteous in church. So that's my spiritual life. You know, I go to church, I yeah. tithe, and I, and I worship God, and then I share my faith. That's my spiritual life. But it has nothing to say about my, my work or my home or anything like that. Not true. Yeah. Jesus hollowed all of life. Think, take this for instance. Jesus was 30 before he started his ministry. What did he do for 30 years? What did he do for 30 years? He, he wasn't out preaching the gospel. Yeah. He wasn't out doing anything. He was a carpenter. He was just a normal guy, right? If all he did was come to die, quote unquote, then he didn't need to do that. Yeah. He could have just lived, he could have been preaching from the beginning. He could have just at 12, he was already ready. The people were accepting it could just become a spiritual leader at that point and then just preach until the day he died. He didn't do that. He lived a normal life. He took care of his family. He took care of his community. He fed into the people around him. And then he put that life down, yeah. right? Your life matters. Mm. It matters a lot. And unfortunately, there are still strains of the church, and the prosperity gospel is one of them, by the way, that teaches that the flesh is not important. That's, by the way, why they believe that God has come to save them in prosperity as opposed to their spiritual lives, right? Because in their minds, they're like, well, yeah, we're going to heaven, but God is also want, wants to bring heaven down here, so he's going to give me infinite prosperity here, and that's the important thing. Mm. No, no, no. Your body acts out the spiritual life. It's not separate. It's not different and distinct, right? And you going through suffering can mirror Christ just as much as you going through prosperity can mirror Christ. Yeah. And therefore, God has organized your life, not necessarily to give you a prosperous life, but to give you a life that will honor him because yeah. your body matters and your life matters. Yeah. And that's the important thing. It's not what kind of circumstances I'm in that make the difference. It's what I do in those circumstances that make the difference. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very good. Um, as far as hidden knowledge in scripture, Fran was asking about that as well. I mean, I don't, I guess it depends on what you mean by hidden knowledge. I know as I've walked with the Lord and grown, there's things that were maybe hidden to me before that I see, but that's more probably about my growth. But I know hidden knowledge as far as could it be like, I know some people, if you add up these numbers and if you da 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 da, then it tells you, you know, I mean, people have tried to predict when Jesus is coming back and yeah. that kind of, I don't know, that kind of hidden knowledge in scripture. Yeah, there, there are ministries, I'm not sure if this is what you mean in your question. If you ha need further clarity, ask a follow up. But you're right, Dave, there are various ministries that go out and they say like, oh, you could figure out the meaning of your life by adding up certain numbers, or uh, you could figure out when Jesus comes back if you add up certain numbers, or yeah. 
you know, I've calculated and figured out that the current world events that we're in right now were predicted in the Bible because of this passage plus this passage equals that passage. Um, there's a lot of weird stuff like that where you're twisting and folding and mutilating Scripture in order to be a more spiritual implication than just what it actually was. So remember, the whole importance of what I'm sharing is what made David, the story of David and Goliath so important is not just that it has a message, but it, because it really happened. Yeah. Right. It's it's both a historical event as well as a narrative that produces spirituality. It's both, and that's what makes it so beautiful. It's not just a myth, something that like has a good message towards it, and therefore it can impact our lives. And it's also not just history. It's both. Right. Yeah. It's a narrative history. So um, the, the idea or concept of hidden knowledge, meaning like what you're talking about, of well, the Bible is very deep, and the narrative within the Bible is very difficult to understand, and it takes years and practical knowledge in order to understand the mysteries that are contained within Scripture, and yeah. I don't think we'll ever fully understand all of them. So there's that kind of hidden knowledge, but the, the hidden knowledge of like, well, no, 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 God is actually hiding things yeah. in the Bible, kind of like the Da Vinci Code, you know, <laughs> like it, right. if you hold it up to this light and you look at it in this way, then, then you're going to see some secret knowledge that no one else knows and yeah. no one else has seen, and it's going to blow you away. Right. And, you know, that kind of thing is, is obviously not true. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. If, if you're talking about something else, though, please ask a follow-up. Yeah. Of course, we do, you know, it's, it's foolishness to the world without... The Holy Spirit, you know, I mean, that is in, in that sense. I'm thinking of ways it could be hidden. I guess it's hidden in that sense that yeah. Yeah. it's really when we when we receive the Holy, when we, we come to the Lord and we receive salvation and we're given the Holy Spirit that that does suddenly make sense and these things start to speak into our life. I remember Pastor Scott the other day said something which was really good to know. He because he's done you know studies on biblical languages, has degrees in in that. Mm. He said there's he's yet to come across a verse where if you delve into the I'm using that word again, delve into the um, yeah. the original languages that it would change the, the meaning, meaning right. you know, which was really powerful to know because, you know, someone like Pastor Scott who can study in the Greek and the yeah. original language is like, well, there's, there might, there's things I don't know, there's things I might yeah. not see the right way, um, and of course there's there's um, there's a, there's wealth of knowledge there and depth, but he said he's yet to come across something where you like, well, it. but if you yeah, but <laughs> if you read the original language, that changes everything, you know, so yeah. so that's. Um, that's good to know. Kind of yeah, brings some. Yeah, sometimes the original words can help bring clarity, but yeah. they never bring a different kind of clarity. Yeah. If you studied the context well enough, and you knew your Bible well enough, any insight you can get in the original language, you could have gotten from these other tools. That you yeah. Have. So yeah, yeah no, good point. Which is good to know. It's, in, it's encouraging for for me, and then, you know, for anyone maybe starting out in the Bible and they're just overwhelmed, and you know, they hear you guys talk and like, I'm, I'll never have that kind of brain. <laughs> <laughs> Come and join my club. Yeah. But uh, yeah, well, thanks, Fran, for those those questions. Again, if, uh, you can follow up if that didn't quite uh, hit the nail on the head. Uh, question from uh, Vil about uh, Onan and Er in uh, in Genesis, right? Why were Onan and Er Er killed? Are you familiar with that passage? I think it's in later in Genesis, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a really obscure story and one that Bo likes because it has a very crude section in there. I'm not going <laughs> to say what's in there, but there's a very crude uh, section in, in something that Onan does before he's killed. But How very uh, childish of Pastor yeah. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at any rate, so those of you guys who don't know the story, uh, Jacob, also named Israel later on, he had 12 sons, and one of his sons was a guy named Judah. And Judah ends up becoming the ancestor, the direct ancestor of Jesus. 
And Judah, in the beginning of the, of the story, at the beginning of his story, he's just a mess of an individual. He's a complete mess. But he's living in a life, he's living a life in which his father has favored Joseph over him. And he grows up with this incredible amount of resentment and bitterness as a result. And it's Judah who actually suggests to sell Joseph into slavery to Ishmaelites who were going to Egypt. So that was Judah's idea. Mm. He was one of the most vicious of the sons of Jacob. And at a certain point after Joseph is sold off, Jacob never favors the other brothers as they wanted. So they thought like, well, once we get rid of Joseph, then he'll treat us the way we deserve as his sons. That never happens, right? Jacob continues to mourn over Joseph and still favors Joseph's memory more than he favors them as mm -hmm. sons. So uh, Judah becomes a father. He, he marries into not a great family or uh, community, and he has sons that are incredibly wicked. And they're so wicked that God just kill, he just kills them, right? We're not really told what is wrong with them, but if God kills you directly, and you're a part of God's family, right? The, the patriarchal family, and yeah. you study the patriarchal family and the kind of stuff that they did. Um, you know that he has a very high threshold for wickedness yeah. in the people he was using. So whatever they were doing, I don't want to know. Right? <laughs> the, the, the author of Genesis doesn't tend to shy away from details like that. Yeah. But if he shied away from details like that, it probably tells me that it would curl my hair if yeah. I knew exactly what these guys were doing. So he strikes his firstborn dead. Then the secondborn, Onan, uh, there was a law at the time where if your brother died without having any kids, you were required as the next in line to marry his widow and to have a son in his name. Mm. And then that son would become the progenitor of your family. So the firstborn, remember, would become the next in line to inherit all the, the land and the wealth of the family. He would, be, he would get the, the double portion and he would be mm. the next patriarch in line to rule over the family. So the idea is you would have a son, you would name that son after your dead brother, and then that son would then inherit what was due to the firstborn. Mm. Now, if you couldn't do that, right? So if you're uh, unable to have kids, right? The wife is barren or you only have girls, then it goes to you. So there's actually a pretty good incentive <laughs> for the secondborn to not have kids with the yeah. brother's widow. Yeah. And so Onan <laughs> practices some um, family planning strategies, <laughs> okay. put it that way, <laughs> and uh, in order to prevent this from happening. And so God strikes him dead. So that's what's going on. And again, remember, it's not just about the resources. <laughs> so kids, let that be a warning. <laughs> <laughs> Do not practice contraception. Oh, no. no, yeah, what do we say? That's not the message. Just stay, um, just stay away from <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> um, but, but So yeah, that, that was a part of his wickedness. But remember, God's intent is to have his Messiah come from Judah's line, yep. uh, specifically through Tamar, this, this widow of Judah's son. So uh, essentially through some other machinations, Judah ends up getting with Tamar and they have a son and that son becomes the ancestor of, of Jesus. But at any rate, what you see in Judah, and this is a part of his redemption story, is that he clearly is favoring his sons to the extent that even though his kids are literally being struck dead by God, he cannot believe that it's their fault. Mm. And so he blames Tamar and he keeps blaming her. And then when he knocks her up, through having sex with her in an illicit way. Not a biblical term. Right, not a, yeah, when he, <laughs> when he knocks her up, when he gets her pregnant. If you study the original language. It says knocked up. No, no, the Hebrew is two, it's a conjunction of two words. It means, no, uh, so when he, when he impregnates her uh, through some illicit affair that they have without him knowing that it was her because she was wearing a veil, 
uh, he immediately says, oh, I knew it. You know, here's this harlot. She's pregnant outside of marriage. She was supposed to be saved for my latter son. So he's like, take her and burn her. He's, he's ready to literally set her on fire and kill her and her unborn child. Yeah. So you see like the depth of depravity yeah. that is within Judah, that resentment, that seething resentment, that because he was passed over by his dad, he can't see the fault in his own sons. Mm. Which, by the way, is a good, good lesson. Sometimes we think that the greatest danger is becoming our parents, Sometimes becoming your parents is bad, but sometimes becoming the opposite of your parents is just as bad, mm. right? So he didn't make the mistake of his dad. He didn't favor his sons. I mean, he didn't favor one of his sons over the other, but he did dote on his sons to such a level that he couldn't see wrong in his sons. Mm. And that is just as bad as neglecting your sons, right? Yeah. Neglecting right. your children. Right. So good lesson from Judah. But yeah, that's that's what's going on there. That's the sin. We're, we're not really told explicitly what their sin is, but it, it was bad, right? And that's enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, God, and God killed them. Right. Wow. Well, thanks, Phil. Hope that, that uh, helps you out. Thanks for your question and being part of the show. Got about five minutes or so left on the show here. Um, a question from Mac D. Uh, he says, um, I struggle with sin that really messes up my prayer life. I think of how guilty I am and how weak I am and how hypocritical I can be at times, but standing up for truth is what sets me free. So not exactly a question, but I, you know, we can certainly make a question out of that. I've, mm. I've heard that a lot and even maybe in my own life where I feel hypocritical going to God in prayer when I know if there's something going on in my life or there's something I'm struggling with, sometimes it keeps you from wanting to go before a holy God mm. <laughs> in prayer or, or kind of at all, you know, and as, um, I know you're part of Running Light Ministry, which is you know su support group for those struggling with um, mostly sexual sin, things in that category. But you probably face that a lot as well. I imagine people like I just I think God, I'm just I'm disgusting. God, you know how can I come before God? How can I? So I don't know. Is there a mindset or something you can speak into that? Yeah, I'm going to find a very specific passage, but there are two essential mistakes that you can make. Because here's and here's the one that we tend to make, uh, and it's the one that sounds like you might be making. Is virtue, is righteousness something that man is capable of in the flesh? Right. That's something we have to ask ourselves a question of. Yeah. Is it possible for you to live up to God's standards apart from the workings of the Holy Spirit? If the answer is no, and that should be pretty logical for all Christians listening, yeah. how do you expect to deal with your sin problem without the intervention of God's Spirit? Yeah. So if you're cutting yourself off, if you're ashamed of your sinful actions, good, by the way, right? That conviction is from the Holy Spirit. That's good. But if that shame is preventing you from coming to God in humility and asking him for help, it's no longer doing what it's supposed to be doing. Yep. It's ensconcing you more in your flesh and teaching you. It's actually making you proud because it's making you believe that you're too bad to go to God, which is a form of pride. And that also in, implicit in that is I can become good enough for God in my flesh, right. apart from God's help. Yeah, let me go get good enough, and then I'll come back. That's when right. That, yeah, right. right. That's an arrogance. That's, I could actually do it. And, and the whole message of the gospel is, no, you can't, yeah. right? If it was possible for us to achieve righteousness, holiness, a life that actually could please God apart from God, then Jesus came for nothing, yeah. right? And, and Paul right. says this way, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But th this is the other problem or mistake that we can make is to take it for granted, to be like, well, God forgives me, so who cares? I'm going to go pray to him and talk to him because, you know, this is not a big deal, right? That's also a mistake <laughs> because that's taking the grace of God for granted, yeah. which is also something that the biblical authors warn about. So what's the balance? Well, I think Micah 7 gives the best balance. Micah 
blows it. We don't know what his sin was, but he blows it. And he gives us a confessional prayer within his own book, which I think is amazing, because sometimes, again, we think of prophets as like these perfect guys, right? But Micah blows it, right? He sins, and he confesses his sin to God, and this is what he prays. He says, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I will see his righteousness. So that's, a, that's an amazing prayer. And mm. notice how he balances it. So he comes before God, and he says, don't rejoice over me, my enemy. And by the way, that's Micah 7, verse 8 through uh, 9, in case you're wondering. Um, so he, he goes before God, and he, he, he says, there's an enemy, right? Is it Satan, or is it his flesh? We don't really know. But he is speaking to some sort of an enemy, or it could be an external force that wanted him to fall. But regardless, he's saying, hey, don't rejoice over me. This is not permanent. I'm yep. going to get back up, right? Pray in confidence and in, with intentionality that you will get back up. The righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up. Right. Proverbs 24, verse 16. Yeah. Right? Do not stay on the ground. Do not wallow in guilt and shame. That's not the purpose of guilt and shame. Mm. Guilt is a motivating emotion. It's supposed to tell you that what you did was wrong and instruct you to do better. Yeah. If it's instead telling you, I did wrong because I am wrong, and this is what I'm always going to do for the rest of my life, and maybe I should just go die, guilt is no longer helping you. It's mm. preventing you from being a better person, right. and it's become a plague in your life. The next thing he does is he has confidence that God will be a light to him. How is he going to get out of this darkness? Because God is going to get me out of this dark place. Even though I sinned against him, God is giving me assurance that he will have guidance for me. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Meaning, again, I'm bearing that guilt because I did something wrong. In our weird culture today, we think that guilt is bad because it makes you feel bad about yourself. Right. You should feel bad about bad actions, right? That's a, that's a good thing, is to feel convicted, is to feel guilty when you've done something wrong. It should motivate you to change. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me forth to light and I will see his righteousness. Why am I forgiven? Because God pleads my case. It's not because I've done the right thing. It's in spite of the fact that I've done the wrong thing that God will forgive me. And because he pleads my case, I will be righteous. And therefore, I could walk in that righteousness. I could live it out and not work for it. Yeah, very good. Beautiful. Well, Peter, thank you. Thank you for your time today. That was a great show. Thank you for all your all your questions. Sorry if we didn't get to the uh, couple that we had. We will be back with you same time and place uh, tomorrow. And uh, we will take more of your questions then. So thank you once again for being part of Reason Vote. We will see you next time. Have a great rest of your evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.